New York City is a culinary melting pot. Here you'll find all kinds of foods and dishes, whether it's fresh produce from a green market or internationally inspired cuisine. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're heading into the kitchen, literally and figuratively. Coming up, we'll get advice on cooking in a small kitchen, something a lot of New Yorkers regularly have to do. To make really good food, you don't actually need a lot of space. You don't need a big suburban kitchen. You don't need a lot of contraptions. We'll also crack open a new cookbook with green market recipes from some of the city's finest chefs. But first, we're off to Long Island City, Queens, to visit a kitchen space that helps aspiring culinary entrepreneurs get their businesses off the ground. It's run by the Queens Economic Development Corporation and Me Kitchen as Soup Kitchen, a consulting business. I recently caught up with a QEDC's executive director, Seth Bornstein, and Catherine Gregory of Me Kitchen as Soup Kitchen. Seth, why don't you start us off? Tell us where we are this morning. Sure. We're at the Entrepreneur Space in Long Island City. This is a commercial kitchen and a small business incubator founded in 2011 by the Queens Economic Development Corporation. We saw a great opportunity four years ago where this commercial space, commercial kitchen was empty. And um, we realized there's a need for small food manufacturers to get space to start their business. So the Queens Economic Development Corporation, with the help of New York City Economic Development Corporation, cobbled together funding for a small amount, basically. And on a shoestring and duct tape, we put together the first real uh, 24-7 food incubator in New York City. And our goal is to help small businesses because Queens EDC, our mission is to create and retain business in Queens. We have many programs. We have a small business uh, consulting services. We run a business competition. We do business planning, consulting, classes, and individuals. We have a women's business center. We run programs um, to help neighborhoods. So it just fell into place beautifully four years ago. And since that time, we've helped over 400 entrepreneurs who've used the facility. We have about almost 300 people registered now who use it. Some use it regularly. Some use it once a week, once a month. Some use it every day. Catherine, explain your involvement with the incubator. Well, I've been in the food industry for close to 40 years, and many years ago I created the concept of the incubator, which was based on my work mentoring two young women who each had a catering company, had no place to manufacture. If you have no place to manufacture, you have no way of growing, you can't do it legally. So I realized that we needed a physical space, someplace they could come in and rent as they needed it didn't have to be a monthly rental. So that's when the incubator concept came about. And as Seth said, four years ago, we I was working with this space with a unofficial incubator. And when they left, QEDC grandly stepped in, which was a great relief. And we created what I call the best incubator around. What makes it the best incubator around? It's not only the space. It's the mentoring. It's the business consulting. It's the access to advice, the immediate access to somebody that can help them solve an issue that they're in. A situation is, I cannot get the bottles that I want. Where do I go? All of these little things that affect small businesses that make them unable to grow, we help them get leap over that. I often call this this place the 
leap of faith. People that come in here who may be wonderful bakers or sauce makers, but no clue how to run a business. And Queen's Economic Development, through our small business counseling services, we give them the tools and the knowledge how to use QuickBooks, how to do marketing, how to advertise, how to hire people, and in the end, how to find space for their permanent uh, location, which is a, a mixed blessing for us, obviously. Uh, we just had a great client here. Uh, she Wolf Bakery started about two years ago. A couple of guys and great ideas for bread. And they grew so much, they left last week. They make the New York Times said they're the best bread in the city. And now they have their facility here in New York City. They stay in the city with about five or six other employees. So it works. Catherine, how many businesses did this incubator start with when it first launched? One. <laughs> and we're, we currently have over 100 different businesses using it on a monthly basis. We have over a hun- almost 200 people under contract with us. Jammers and people making pickles don't use it every month, but making bread or cookies, you do. So there's a fluctuation. How wide-ranging are the clients? I mean, you mentioned jammers and picklers, but who else in between? If it's food, it's being made here. (laughs) I don't care what it is. We have chocolate. We have uh, hot sauce. We have breads. We have protein waffles. We even have tea and coffee being made here. And we have a gin distiller who's got his offices here. He doesn't make the gin here, though. <laughs> and we also, this, this week's New York Magazine, did an article about candy. One of the uh, candy makers' profile is Mitch Mallows, who makes gourmet marshmallows here in the incubator. Now, no doubt, Queens is a very, very, very diverse borough. Is that diversity reflected in the kitchen? Absolutely. I mean, you walk through this kitchen and you walk in through the United Nations. I mean, we have many women entrepreneurs, minorities, immigrants, people who come from... You know, people come from different places around the world, and the first thing they want to have is the food of their country. So we have a woman who makes Argentinian cookies, Norwegian flatbread, uh, rye breads that are made all over, French pastries, uh, German foods, and from all over the world, uh, Vietnamese, so even the Vietnamese cater, I believe. Um, so it really is a reflection of what this city and this borough is right here in this incubator. Catherine, what would you say are among the key questions learned on the floor of the kitchen here? How to produce efficiently and how to price properly. If you don't price properly, you will never make money. Production affects your costs and if you can maximize your your time here at the kitchen. We've got amazing equipment for volume production. We've got an oven that you can bake 40 sheet pans at one time. That could equate to about 50 dozen cookies all at one time. We have a mechanical sheeter, meaning that instead of sitting there and rolling the dough out, you can now roll out a five-foot piece of dough and just sit there with your cookie cutter and take care of it. This is the important part. I mean, making it at home is wonderful, but here you learn the efficiency in your production and then consequently the efficiency of your costs. And I think you mentioned this earlier, you can't legally make things at home for commercial purposes. Yes and yes. (laughs) Okay. Let me clarify. You can make certain goods 
in what's called a home exemption processor's license. You are limited to selling them strictly at farmer's markets. You are limited to the products you can make. So you can make orange marmalade jam, but you can't make strawberry jam. You can't make pickles. You can't make hot sauce. You can make certain cookies at home. All right, so you're limited to the type of product. You're also limited to the amount of money. You can make $12,000 of sales revenue a year. $12,000 of sales revenue is a hobby. So now if somebody says, well, I want to try it and see. Yes, people lined up outside of my booth at the LIC Flea and Food, and they loved it. Next step is coming here because that's where you need to come here, start making it here. You get inspected by either the Department of Health or New York State Ag and Markets. You become what we call legal. You're now allowed to sell to the supermarkets. You're allowed to sell to all the gourmet stores. You can sell online. You can sell at uh, LIC Flea. You can do whatever you want to, and you can really make money. (laughs) So how does it all work, Seth? How do you rent out the kitchen space? We rent by the shift. People come in. They take a tour. We ask anybody to come in. We have tours twice a week uh, during the day, uh, Monday and Wednesdays. Evenings and afternoons. Evenings and afternoons. Take a tour and meet with the staff, with Catherine or the uh, director, Dorothy Steins, and learn about the incubator. Based on that, they're asked to file a formal application, which is quite simple: a business plan, a couple of pages, um, and they need their license and insurance. And they have an orientation session where they learn how to use the facility. Every client here has the use of what we call a client assistant, and the client assistants are great people. And uh, we have a great partnership with the Fortune Society. Catherine can discuss that because it really is unique also about the incubator. We've given jobs to people who really need them to train, and that's uh, something we're really proud of. So. Mm-hmm. We partnered with the Fortune Society. They were looking to create a culinary job training program for young men and women leaving the prison system who had no hopes of doing anything better unless they got some type of ability to learn to earn money. They were originally thinking of creating their own kitchen, and we said, well, let's do a partnership. You come here, use our kitchen, rent it when you need. Just like the businesses, if you don't need it all the time, don't rent it. And we'll work with you as far as the interns after your graduates complete their course and all the other attendant courses they have to take. We'll take them on here at least one or two every semester and train them here. We've actually hired six of their graduates so far. In the two and a half years we've been working with them, which I think is a great rate, we've taken many of their graduates and put them in specifically with our clients to get. So our clients now are getting free labor for the two or three shifts they're here, which is great on their end. They love that. And many of these people have gotten hired by the client. Just like any internship, usually the person who's working for free gets hired. Why? You've already spent the energy and time training them. Might as well keep them there if they're good. How frequently do the two of you get to taste the products coming out of the kitchen here? All the time. I mean, uh, Catherine's here you know, a few days a week. I'm here you know, three, four times a week. We have a number of offices. And whenever we're here, a client will come with a sample, uh, something, what do you think? And, and we're honest. You know, it tastes good, maybe a little more sugar, a little more salt, a little crisper. Uh, 
And, you know, we bakers here, and if I get here at 4 o'clock and the bread's still warm, they always leave a couple of loaves for staff, and I uh, get compliments on the great bread I bring home. Well, we have a rule, Dorothea and I. Dorothea is our center director. If you come here, you'd better be prepared to give us samples. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our job is to taste everything that's going on. <laughs> Not really, but, you know, and everybody does want the feedback. All right, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd want to add? No, let's take a tour, and then if you see anything else you want to ask, we can go from there. All right. Um, whenever our clients get press or that we see that we have our clients have gotten press, we clip it out and we put it on the Hall of Fame. We've got lots of wall space, and we plan on filling all of it with posters of our clients. So point out some of the articles that we have here. Uh, we have um, She-Wolf Bakery because we mentioned them. One of our clients was on, uh, what was that? Cutthroat Kitchen. Cutthroat Kitchen, yes, and she won <laughs> very creatively. Uh, we have Meatballs, and we have, oh, God. Uh, Russ and Daughters. Russ and Daughters is now making their own breads rather than buying. Russ and Daughters from the Lower East Side. Absolutely. They opened a cafe, which is absolutely delightful, and they decided that they really wanted to have top-notch bread, so they've imported a bread baker from Massachusetts, artisanal bread baker, and he is here making his breads here because, again, they didn't need to build a space to make the bread because that was not their main focus right now. It's, it's an additional. It adds emphasis and uh, adds prestige to their restaurant and to the Lower East Side store. But it's not Im- they don't need to spend that money. Uh, even though Russ and Daughters has been there 100 years, the restaurant's brand new. So we're yet again helping another small business here in New York City to grow. Today is a rather light day. We only have three clients. Um, this huge kitchen can accommodate four businesses all at the same time. We run it 24-7, so that means 12 different businesses can work out of here in one day. Times seven, times 365 days, that's a lot of businesses. We've got a jammer in today. Um, In about half an hour, our protein waffle lady will be in. She makes waffles filled with protein powder, mostly sold to spas and workout places. So somebody who's trying to bulk up, these are the perfect things. And our chocolatier is in. He makes chocolate-covered jalapenos. And I have to tell you, they're the best things around. My name is Sarah Meyer. And uh, my husband, Corey, and I are the owners of Little Bird Chocolates. And we make candied jalapenos covered in chocolate. Today we are doing actually a wedding order. So we're doing all uh, original animal crackers and we're covering them in chocolate. So you're here just in time to watch us cover cookies in chocolate. How long have you been doing this now? Just over a year. What inspired you to get into the chocolate making business? I'm crazy. What were you doing before? Well, I still am. I work for, a, uh, for New York One, a local television station. My husband was a New York City EMT. So tell me about how you came to work in this space. Catherine Gregory is amazing. We, need, we knew we needed to upgrade from uh, making things to the kitchen table to making things in a commercial workspace. And we found the incubator. 
and uh, Catherine has been invaluable. Catherine and Seth and the entire QEDC group have been really invaluable in helping us move from a home-based hobby into an actual business. How much are you producing here in any given shift? It depends on the product that we're making we, uh, and what the demand is. Right now, we're supplying six stores in Brooklyn, one in Manhattan, and uh, two different websites. So we get custom orders all the time. We're working with distributors. So we're, it just depends on the day. We can be candying 200 pounds of jalapenos one day and making wedding cookies the next. It just depends on what the uh, demand is. Did you ever think that you would be in this place a year ago? Did you think about that, Corey? Never, never. We, we always wanted to do something for ourselves, but this was just out of my wife's crazy mind that this, this whole project sprouted, and uh, it's been incredible. For more information about the Kitchen Incubator in Long Island City, Queens, check out our website, wfuv.org cityscape. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. Chefs everywhere rave when the city's freshest produce comes through their kitchens. A new cookbook includes green market recipes from some of the city's finest chefs. It's called The New Green Market Cookbook. Joining us on the phone this morning is author Gabrielle Langholtz. Gabrielle, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Your book includes recipes for all four seasons, but since we're rapidly heading into fall, yep. let's start with autumn recipes. Do you have a favorite in the book? I have so many favorite recipes in this book. It was so much fun testing and testing these recipes over and over and getting them perfect. There is a Brussels sprout salad. Those words might not make your mouth water, but this dish sure would from Jonathan Waxman at Bar- Barbudo that I just made all fall, every day last year. I just couldn't get enough, especially after the Brussels sprouts have been hit by frost and they turn so much sweeter. So the Brussels sprouts are just shaved really thinly on a mandolin. Um, you could use a knife if you have a, if you don't have a mandolin. And, um, but you can get one so cheaply in Chinatown, you guys. Anyway, the Brussels sprouts are shaved really thinly and they have this wonderfully bright citrusy dressing and they'll just be your favorite thing on um, on your fall table. And so many of the recipes in this book are like that. They have a kind of chef-y flourish. Um, there's a broccoli dish from Jean-Georges. It's, um, it's broccoli with chilies and mint. And my recipe tester and I just looked at each other. She said, yep. He's Jean-Georges. I mean, we all have made broccoli at home so many times, and this recipe takes like eight minutes, but um, boy, does it shine. There's a spicy sweet potato salad from oh, Tamar Adler. Oh, I love Adler. that one. I'm so glad you mentioned that one. I um, Have you made it? I highly Not recommend it. Not yet, but I am planning to. Yeah, I am so used to thinking about sweet potatoes my whole life as something that um, maybe they have brown sugar and butter and maybe they have pecans. But this is a really Vietnamese flavor profile. So you just bake the sweet potatoes. It couldn't be easier. You just stick them in the oven. But then they've got this really bright lime dressing with um, shallots or red onion and jalapeno and peanuts. So it's like this really um, Vietnamese Thai flavor party in your mouth that just comes – it's so everybody always asks me for the recipe, and now they can have it in this book. Since we do have some time left before fall officially kicks in, what would you say are the absolutely must-make summer recipes in your book? 
Oh, yeah. This is my favorite time of year because, you know, the calendar says fall is coming any second now, but we still really have those amazing summer harvests going strong. So you can still get spectacular corn. Peaches are going strong. Plums are incredible. Um, the September raspberries I love right now. Um, and yet the, the fall the fall harvests are showing up, too. So it's like, you know, both ends of the candle right now. We can just eat ourselves silly. Um, let's see, some of my favorite summer recipes in the book. Honestly, there is a goat cheese cheesecake that I am just crazy about. Um, it's got just a little bit, instead of, um, your standard cream cheese, it's got fresh chev, like you can get at the green market. It's got just a little bit of an unexpected tang, and it's so easy. And it's also no-bake, so um, you make it ahead, you stick it in the fridge, so it's perfect for entertaining because it's completely make-ahead. And one of the things I love about this recipe is you can – you. I think in the book we have um, – nectarines on top, but you can make it year-round with whatever looks good to you at the farmer's market, which of course is the way that I like to cook. So I have a couple recipes in the book like this that are kind of tailorable canvases, especially desserts, that you can make in May or June with those first strawberries. You can make them in summer with gooseberries or you know you can put pears as we go into fall. They're just really flexible and so you can show up at the farmer's market, this is the way I like to shop, without a shopping list see what looks spectacular, or talk to the farmers and say, what's great today? What are you picking right now? Maybe it's something you've literally never tasted before in your life. And, um, and go home and play with it. You can't go wrong. How are tomatoes at this time of year? Killer. Absolutely killer. I eat so many tomatoes this time of year that I actually have burned my mouth on the acid <laughs> a couple of times. So, um, yes, absolutely. Tomatoes will go strong. Um, I mean, they do best, obviously, when the sun is high in the sky. So tomatoes will still be available into November, but right now they still have that spectacular summer flavor. And, um, of course, we have a ton of tomato recipes in the book. Um, one of my favorites, obviously, people go justifiably crazy for the heirloom tomatoes, especially those great, big, funky-looking ones. But one of my favorites is actually a little um, hybrid cherry type um, that's called the sun gold, and it's become a little bit of a cult ingredient. They're a um, golden orange, and they have such over-the-top tomato flavor. We actually have a recipe in the book for a pasta. with It's so simple. Um, but I just buy a quarter of those and just eat them. So, yeah, tomatoes, get them while they're good because in, in a couple weeks, you know, it'll really feel like fall, and we'll have to say goodbye tomatoes. So still time to make Amanda Hesser's brown butter tomatoes. Oh, yeah, I love that one. That's an example of a recipe that, you know, you can just see why she is such a famous culinary professional. I, my whole life, I've always drizzled um, good olive oil oil on raw tomatoes, on, on sliced tomatoes with some salt, and felt like I was in ecstasy. But I've never thought of this before. She does a burn noisette, like a brown butter on the stove. You know, it just takes a few minutes, and it gets that wonderfully nutty aroma and pours that over sliced tomatoes. And um, I, I, you don't even need to buy the book. I just gave you the recipe. And um, that is, is one of those recipes that changes your life, and you'll make it for the rest of your life every August and September. Gabrielle, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. Gabrielle Langholtz is the author of the new Green Market Cookbook, 
out from DeCapo Press. She's also the editor of Edible Manhattan Magazine. For a lot of New Yorkers, cooking in New York City entails doing so in a small kitchen. Enter Kara Eisenpress. She's behind the blog Big Girls Small Kitchen and the co-author of the cookbook In the Small Kitchen. Kara joins us this morning to provide some advice on food preparation in tiny spaces. Kara, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So here in New York City, it's a dilemma facing a lot of people. They like to cook, but they have a small kitchen. Right. So what do you do? Honestly, you just make the best of it. To make really good food, you don't actually need a lot of space. You don't need a big suburban kitchen. You don't need a lot of contraptions. You need, you know, a couple of pots and pans, um, some knives, some cutting boards, and a decent amount of patience. How big is your kitchen? Right now, it's um, actually a full third of our apartment, so it's a small apartment, but the kitchen takes up um, probably about 150 square feet. But when I started the site, it was really a closet. I think it was a converted closet. So can you even host a dinner party for a good number of people with a small kitchen? You can. Um, We don't have a dining room table, so it's definitely more of a sort of buffet, put your plate on your knees, you know, stand up, sit down, rest a plate on the coffee table. Everything has more than one purpose. So, you know, what might have been a desk during the day is suddenly the place where we pile up the desserts, you know. What tips can you provide for making larger recipes in a small kitchen? You have to make things ahead of time. Stews are basically my go-to for a party, not really in the summer, but, um, you know, you can make it a couple days in advance, even clean your stove, get everything ready to go. You can even have it stored in the fridge in a pot and then just heat it up when everybody comes. Also kind of just in general staggering when you make things. So maybe you have something that's in the oven and one thing that's on the stove and one thing that's make ahead or served at room temperature so that you're not trying to, you know, wrangle a bunch of different boiling pots when you also have friends over and the whole point was to socialize. Grilled cheese is its own highlight on your (laughs) blog. Is that the most versatile recipe for small kitchen owners? You know, it kind of is. Um, I love it. And I love it because maybe I uh, sometimes have the taste of a kid. But I also think that you can do all kinds of things with it. So one thing that I love to do with sort of a nod to being healthful is you can put any kind of vegetable in there. So you saute some grated zucchini, maybe some spinach and garlic, slice up a few tomatoes. You pile that in between the cheese and the bread, toast it up, and then you actually have kind of a grown-up dinner. And I think it's versatile enough that you can make it every day in one pan and not really get bored. When did the blog come about, Big Girls, Small Kitchen? It came about in the fall of 2008. I had graduated college a little more than a year before that and um, was working my first job, um, was living in an apartment in the East Village with two roommates. And, you know, the kitchen was fairly terrible. And I just sort of had started cooking for myself. I had always cooked growing up, but I was really making a point to feed myself breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, have friends over even though the apartment wasn't was even less conducive to uh, having people over than than it is now. And I sort of noticed that people were asking me for advice, and I didn't feel like I was doing anything that extraordinary. And so that's when I think it occurred to me that there was something in the air that people were interested in food, but just not quite sure how to make it work for themselves. 
So then the blog led to the book in the small kitchen? Exactly. About a year later, um, we got a book deal, and then the book came out in um, 2011. What would you say is your favorite recipe in that book? That's a tough one. Um, There is a grilled cheese. There is also a Moroccan chicken stew in there that has, um, it's kind of like everything in one pot. There's chicken, there's tomatoes, there's chickpeas, there's um, squash or sweet potato, and it could either feed you for an entire week or it's a great, great dinner party meal. What are among the top questions you get from people? One is about basically meal planning. You know, I can cook one meal for myself or I can throw one dinner party, but how do I feed myself and my roommate or or significant other on a daily basis? And I think the answer to that one is you kind of have to just feel it out until you start to really enjoy cooking and then you do it more. Another question is definitely about occasions. You know, what can I make for a birthday party or or other celebration? And then I think probably in the last couple years, there's been more about health. You know, how do you eat things that are delicious and, you know, keep you feeling pretty good? A lot of people spend a lot of time in restaurants in New York City, no question about that. What can you say to encourage people to spend more time in the kitchen cooking for themselves? You save so much money. You can just learn to make something out of very, very little. So you go to the store and you spend 2 or $3 on an onion and some ginger, and you know you can quickly make a vegetable stir-fry. People should cook. Kara, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Kara Eisenpress is the founder of the blog Big Girls Small Kitchen and the co-author of the cookbook In the Small Kitchen. And that's all the time we have for today. If you want more Cityscape, you can hear past episodes in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can keep up on the latest Cityscape news on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.